Welcome to the IAH Podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth, Coordinator for Faculty Programs. In this episode, Melissa Clay speaks with Leon Botstein, Bard College President and American Symphony Orchestra Conductor. In their conversation, Dr. Botstein talks about the origins of his love of music and how being a conductor informs his leadership practice as president of a university. When did you know that music was going to be a big part of your life? I think my connection to music dates from very early childhood, uh, and there really are two reasons for it. Um, one, I... I'm an immigrant, and I came uh, as a very, very small child, two years old. And for me, the language acquisition was very difficult. So I stuttered all my childhood and early adulthood, and I never learned any language properly. In other words, uh, I grew up in a multilingual home, so there was, there was a proliferation of languages, Polish, Russian, German, and English then thrown in. And um, other languages, because my family, when we came to the United States, ended up living in an emigre community. Mm-hmm. So my English is hampered. Every language I use is slightly hampered. And the only language that felt totally natural to me was music. So that's one reason. The other is that very early in my childhood, my mother, who was a very distinguished pediatrician, professor of medicine, she developed a very aggressive case of bilateral Meniere's disease, and and she became deaf. And I experienced her agony over the loss of the ability to hear music, because it's a destruction not only of your volume, your, your perception of volume, but also of pitch discrimination. I mean, all music sounded like noise. Not that noise isn't a form of music, but you know what I mean. That, but it right. sounded completely cacophonous, and um, and it made a deep impression on me. Her and I somehow had this childlike ambition to go where she could no longer go. Yes, I, as someone who's losing my hearing and studied music when I was young. I could absolutely relate to that. Yeah, um, yeah that's wonderful. And what does, what does music teach you about leadership? Because you are uh, the music director at the American Symphony Orchestra and you are Bard College president. How do, how do those things work together? It's interesting. It, there is a connection. So conducting, leading an ensemble, but particularly conducting as an art, has many components to it, but one of the components is persuasion. You have to persuade a group of players or a chorus to do something that you think will make what they're doing as persuasive as possible, as good as possible, whether it's on an opera stage or an orchestral performance or a choral orchestral performance. So you're in the business of persuading, and and like any leadership There are many modes of doing it. In certain cases, you know, some people succeed by fear or by cajoling or by chumminess. You know, do this because you're my friend, you know. Uh, (laughs) 
whining and dining your way to the result. Um, there, there are all kinds of ways of doing it. But when you're on the box, on the podium, and you're in front of, let's say, professional orchestra, these are highly selected, very experienced, very cynical, top-flight professionals whose basic attitude to you is, what gives you the right to be on that box? And they're looking for fault, but they're also, they would like to be engaged. Uh, they don't want to be bored. And so it's an extremely tough crowd. And you have to learn how to win them over, over their own reluctance to be won over, their resistance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being a conductor is an unenviable situation because you're really providing people with unsolicited advice. <laughs> they didn't ask you for that. That persuasiveness, and I don't operate by fear. You can't lead that way. And if you're in a position of leadership, you also have to be able, difficult as it is, uh, to hear things you don't want to hear. You also have to be able to admit error. One conductor teacher once said to me, never admit you made a mistake, you know, when you have. You know, always blame it on the orchestra. I think that's ridiculous. You recently wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times entitled, American Universities Must Take a Stand. Here's a quote from that piece. The presidents of our colleges and universities must defend the principles that have enabled institutions of higher education to flourish. These are freedom and tolerance and openness to individuals, no matter their national origin or religion. As Bard College president, what does that look like in practical terms? In practical terms, I think that the American University which has been for decades the preeminent university system in the world. That preeminence has been based on openness to foreign-born students and faculty, being a magnet in an open society to students and scholars coming from all over the world, and an attitude of tolerance and freedom and non-discrimination. Our very survival as well as our um, principles, are dependent on maintaining that. And the tone and substance of what is coming out of the White House is directly against that. The most grievous thing is the absolute shameless capacity to falsify facts, whether they be in science or in historical events, whether or not there were 12 people or 14 people, or whether you know, there were this amount or that amount or none at all of voter fraud. And uh, whether or not, you know, uh, there is a connection between vaccination and autism, whether or not there is evidence or not of climate change. What do we know? What don't we know? It has nothing to do with Mr. Trump's avowed positions. We have a, a situation which is unimaginable. It's a kind of living nightmare, not because of his beliefs, not because he's a defender of, of, a, of an angry, disenfranchised um, part of the population. Um, it's, it's that, you know, that we are missing a chance to reinvent the relationship of government to its citizens, that government isn't your enemy. I mean, I'm proud to pay taxes. I don't want to have a president who's proud that he didn't. I, I wish our taxpayers were better, tax dollars were better used, but that doesn't, 
that doesn't uh, eliminate the need to pay taxes. I, so my view of, um, of the current situation is that um, the university and what it stands for has something to worry about. Uh, uh, the beginning days of this presidency have all the earmarks of a kind of strange lurch to autocracy. For the university, this is not a partisan issue. This is not about Republican and Democrat. It's not about whether you're for health care or against health care, or you think there should be less taxes or greater tax taxes, not whether you think the Iran deal was a good deal or a bad deal. Those are partisan issues. It's about the fundamental conduct of American politics and the fundamental principles that are in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution, and the Equal Protection Clause, the Fifth Amendment, First Amendment, and the separation of powers, the respect of the separation of powers, the respect for the judiciary and the independence of the judiciary, not to bully them. I think universities really have to defend themselves, and the immigration issue is crucial. You know, this university, UNC, Chicago, Berkeley, Massachusetts, Harvard, Texas, Alabama, University of Alabama and Birmingham, what's going to do if America's seen as a hostile, xenophobic place where if you're differing skin color or nationality, you're not welcome? What, do we want to descend to the level of, of universities in a provincial, homogeneous country where there is no great science and there's no great intellectual ferment and not great teaching? Uh, the cutting edge of our economy derives from what universities do. Half, I think, of our graduate students in science are foreign, born. What is a book you have read or music piece you've heard that changed your life? So I have to confess that the piece that made the greatest impression upon me as a child is the Brahms Violin Concerto. So I can remember to this day, we had come to this country, we lived in an apartment house in the Bronx, and my mother was already losing hearing, and there was a piano in the house, she was an amateur pianist. And we went to these concerts at Lewison Stadium, which is an open air for $2 a seat, and it was the New York Philharmonic, but without the chief player, so it was called, I think, the Lewison Stadium Symphony Orchestra, something like that. And they took the entire family. I was the youngest. And I, remember, I can see it today. Uh, there was uh, the great Hungarian violinist, Joseph Sigeti. And he was, I remember, because it was what children remember, he was in a black tailcoat, white tie. Although it was the middle of summer. The entire <laughs> orchestra was in white jackets. And then he stood out. He was really at the end of his career, but he played the Brahms on control. And, and when I was a kid... I saved up enough money babysitting to buy a recording of Yasha Heifetz with Fritz Reiner on the Chicago Symphony. Arguably, in my mind, the greatest recorded violin concerto in all time of any concerto by any violinist because of the matching of perfection between the orchestra, the conductor, and the soloist. There never was, there probably, and there never will be a violinist quite like Heifetz. So, but the piece, the opening orchestral introduction, the tutti of that piece, has a place in my psyche that it's, sort of, it's like the origin, it's like the foundation of my sort of uh, musical apartment house. And uh, so that, I would say that, that piece. The only other competitor of that piece is my uncle, 
with whom I lived in the summers in Mexico City, because they were refugees, couldn't get in the United States. He was a wonderful amateur pianist, and he was a real connoisseur of music, and he was a devotee of Chopin. So if I hear someone play, they have a kind of uh, an emotional kick to my own childhood and my, my relation to my uncle. So I think those are the autobiographical pieces. That's wonderful. That is, that's, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Well, thank you for asking. Yes, and, and thank you for your time again. Thank you again, Dr. No, Bernstein. my pleasure. Right. My pleasure. Check back at ieh.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IEH underscore UNC.